Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, the tennis podcast from an insider's perspective. I'm Craig Shapiro, and on the show, I talk with the most interesting voices in the sport. It's our 20th episode, and we've got a great show for you today. We get a lot of requests for a lot of guests, and this guy is always at the top of that list. So Joan from Fort Lauderdale, Kevin from Phoenix, and Deepak from D.C. Today, your wish is our command. He grew up with Andy Roddick and posted wins over world number ones like Agassi, Federer, Murray, Delpo, and Nadal, to name a few. He got to seven in the world and was recently named captain of the United States Davis Cup team. Captain Marty Fish is going to tell us why he's excited about the new format for Davis Cup, what it's like to be across the net from Rafa and Joker, how he dealt with crippling anxiety, and why he sometimes feels like he was created in a bar. We met up with Marty via Skype. Uh, first of all, Marty, uh, I should say Captain, uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you for coming on. Yeah, man, no problem. We're just going to get right into this. We do a five-set format, and uh, the first set, we call it the off-the-court report. I'd like to talk to you about Davis Cup. Congratulations. Tremendous. Uh, I appreciate that, man. It's got a really nice ring to it. I'm not sure when that'll get old uh, when you say captain. Um, certainly the first few weeks, it feels really good. Uh, I'm super excited. Uh, my love for Davis Cup and this specific uh, job and, and title um, is a dream job for me. Um, it absolutely is. Even when I was playing Davis Cup over the years, I always knew that eventually I wanted to be a Davis Cup captain. Um, I figured that I'd have to wait longer than I did, but I think uh, my passion for uh, the format, the guys, the, the, the competition itself uh, just sort of jumped off the page at a lot of people. The, the support that I had from the players uh, was really special as well. Um, I've made a lot of really great relationships and friendships over the years not that it's a popularity contest to get the job but hey man listen by the way earned you were seven in the world you never ever once said no to davis cup and i know that so um earned not a popularity contest whatsoever well thank you yeah and and you know but you know you want someone in there that the players want to play for and know that um you know they'll they'll say yes and and that meant the world to me um, to get their support. And then, you know, like you said, I mean, I, I never said no. I was a practice partner when I was top 20 in the world. And and like you said, man, said you had to Bogota, Colombia all the way through and, and uh, didn't matter where it was. And I always love those. And, and, you know, playing my last Davis Cup as a player in, in 2012 in Switzerland and beating Federer and Walrinka there and, and beating those guys 5-0, that certainly meant the world to me and to the guys. And, and so uh, I, I'm super excited about it, as you can kind of hear. And, and um, I can't wait to get started. It sounds to me, you know, upon further review of what's going on, that these two weeks in, in November in Madrid, it's going to be like a festival of tennis. Is that how it feels to you? Yeah, I mean, just think World Cup of soccer, you know. I mean, just think, you know, countries, uh, uh, you know, qualify for the, the Davis Cup final, and then, you know, six six groups of three you play each uh, one in your group and each country in your group play two matches two out of three sets two singles and one doubles and then you advance and try to advance and um the more i think about it the more i think about how kind of how cool that would be while i was playing um that type of thing but the uh the some some of the things that guys may not like is you know really just the date um 
you know, Davis Cup over the years has always been yes to it all the time, but it, but uh, uh, it never really fits perfectly within your schedule. Um, and that, that was the issue with a lot of the guys, you know, and it would just happen year after year after year. And now you have to play one uh, tie in February to get to that Davis Cup final. Um, you know, I mean, I, I don't necessarily like soccer, but I love the World Cup. It's awesome. You know, that, that sort of format and watching all that and seeing, you know, how you advance and stuff. And I'm really excited about um, the new format. I know that, uh, uh, you know, guys, and look, I'm, I'm a Davis cup Homer hundred percent, just like, you know, I, I know you got some criticism from some of the guys like Leighton Hewitt and those guys. I, I love Davis cup as much as he does. Uh, don't get me wrong. I really do, but it needed some sort of change. It needed some kind of invigoration, man. Yeah. And it, I, I love golf as well. And I love the fact that the Ryder cup is every other year, um, uh, that was one of the things that initially when I heard about it, be like, oh man, well, if for the players, you got this every other year, it would really feel like they would take this incredibly seriously. Um, you know, and then, and then some of the backlash and some of the feedback from, from some of the guys who don't like it, uh, you know, uh, uh, Sasha Zverev is one of the guys yeah. who has, who has mentioned that he doesn't like, it doesn't see himself playing. I mean, he, I can't say no to playing for my country. I guess he can, and and that's fine with me. <laughs> well, you know what? I mean, he might. Every, all, everybody might come around when they see. Yeah, give it a second. You know, sometimes change takes a minute. Maybe Sasha's going to want to play. Yeah, and look, I know they're enjoying. I know they're enjoying the Labor Cup, and that seems like there's a lot of money to be had during the Labor Cup when these guys play. And I just I, personally, I can't manufacture something out of thin air uh, as much as I can for playing yeah. for my country, playing for a world sort of thing or whatever. I know they have fun. All the guys that I've talked to, especially the Americans, absolutely love it. Apparently the atmosphere is amazing and they treat the guys amazing. I mean, they basically get treated like Roger Federer gets treated every week for one week. And I can understand how the guys love it. And, and uh, you know, and they, they pub it up on social media and they do a really nice job with it. Don't get me wrong. It seems like uh, labor cups, an awesome, an awesome event. That being said, there's no way that I could say I'd rather win the Labor Cup than the Davis Cup when I'm playing for my country, my my teammates. Uh, the, that that means the world to me over anything else. Now, Marty, um, by the way, you still look like you could play pro tennis. So we watched you at a couple of the Invesco events. You're still a world-class player, man. I mean, what, what kind of exercise are you doing? How do you stay in such terrific shape? Well, I... I uh, for about a year, I stopped eating. Um, so I, I lost a bunch of weight and got back to kind of what looks like playing shape. However, it's not, it just, uh, it may look a little bit thinner than, um, than I used to, you know, used to look after I retired. Um, I kind of let myself go there for a little bit, but look, I don't play any tennis anymore. Right. Um, just, you know, going out and playing here in LA, the only times that I play are exhibitions. Right. Um, I was never a guy that needed to hit balls, even throughout my career needed to hit as many balls as I did work on my body and, and maintain, um, uh, my fitness and, and my, you know, my health. Look, I I'm sure I could go out now and, you know, get back at, at it and, and play some, you know, maybe high level doubles. Um, doubles has always been a, a, a fun sort of passion of mine throughout the years, even though I didn't want it to necessarily get into the, into the way of singles at all. I loved playing doubles. I'm sure I could go out there and, you know, and, and train for a little bit and, and get into some sort of high level doubles. But as far as singles goes, those years are past. 
hey man, we still think you hit the ball like a dream. Now that Avesco event, th those events are just terrific, aren't they? I mean, if you're a fan, you get to kind of do a hit and giggle, sort of a little practice run with you guys at the VIP, and then and then you guys play pretty hard, I would say. We play very hard. Um, <laughs> that's as much as we got, whatever you're seeing. Um, they're fun. They're fun for the fans because you're up close and personal with the players. And then and then for us, they're they're cool because you know for me. Crossing generations is kind of a really cool thing. I never got to play Jim Courier. I never got to play Michael Chang, uh, John McEnroe throughout the year. So uh, crossing generations and being on the court with those guys is a really special thing for, for me personally. Um, and then, and then, you know, seeing my buddies, I, I don't see James. I just got off the phone with James, but I don't see him very often. I don't see Andy very often. Yeah. Um, Tommy and I live in, in Los Angeles, but I don't see those guys very often. So it's a great excuse for us to get together and hang out and, and, uh, and compete a little bit. Uh, we certainly go as hard as, as we can. Um, I know <laughs> yeah. Tommy, Tommy definitely still looks like he can play, um, and gets, uh, awfully upset when he loses, you know, it used to be Andy beating Andy was always, you know, in anything he and I, we always compete at anything over the years and, Beating him always used to be the best thing. Now it's Tommy because Tommy takes it way too seriously. So he gets a little. So it's kind of a joke with all the guys uh, between all the guys. Beating if you can beat Tommy, um, that's that's the best win out there. Moving into our second set, we call this the On the Court Report. You're still heavily involved in the sport with, you know, Davis Cup obviously, and your work at ESPN. What have your impressions been of what's going on right now? Let's start with the women. Yeah, um, you know, doing commentary for ESPN, it, it keeps you in the loop in a lot of those things. Um, I don't watch a ton of tennis on TV apart from now, you know, now with the Davis Cup stuff, watching my buddies. I'll be uh, very hands-on with a lot of that stuff on the men's side. On the women's side, um, I keep in it with uh, the friends that play. Who are they? Well, just, you know, watching the Americans and, and, and rooting and supporting Daniel Collins. Uh, you know, she never won a match in a Grand Slam, and she made the semis. I would have given anything for the semis of a Grand Slam. I I played a number one or a number two player in the world every time I played in the quarters of a Grand Slam. So um, the, the four or five times that I did. So I would have given anything for a semi of a Grand Slam. Um, she made the semis without winning a match uh, prior uh, in a Grand Slam. So pretty amazing stuff, pretty fun stuff. Madison Keys is a sweetheart. Sloane Stevens, you know, she used to train out here at Carson where I was, you know, when she, I remember when she was 14, 15 years old, um, what an athlete, what a, what a, um, what a, you know, a talent and, and, you know, just to watch them, we have the same agents, Sloane and I, and I don't know, I just, I like watching, um, you know, Serena do her thing and just kind of watching greatness. And, and when my kids grow up, they're going to say, Hey daddy, do you remember when Serena Williams played? And, and so I love, I love watching that as well. And, and, um, you know, on, on that women's side, they've got some great players on the women's side. Kathy Rinaldi is very lucky, uh, as the fed cup captain to, uh, to have that pool to dip into, um, uh, whenever she wants and, and all those girls wanting to play and, uh, you know, there were a couple of years, two years ago in 2017 U.S. Open, they had four Americans in the semifinals. So yeah. uh, pretty cool, pretty cool on the women's side. Do you think that this sort of Serena build to the slam to, to, to break the record has created an intense pressure cooker for her? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, we saw what a what a 
wild finish to her match down under, you know, I can't imagine being a five, one against, you know, let's say Roger Federer in the quarters of a grand slam and, you know, in the fifth set and thinking you're actually going to win and actually reel off six in a row. And you just don't see that very often from those champions. And you know that, you know, they're human beings too. And no one is exempt from the pressure of expectation or the pressure of wanting to be the greatest of all time. Um, there's no doubt in my mind, Serena will get that record. And, um, it's just a matter of when, and, uh, you know, Wimbledon is sort of that one that jumps out at you where you really feel like uh, she's won it so many times that that could be the one that she does it at. Um, uh, the French has never, never really been her, her biggest tournament, um, or her best uh, slam. So, you know, we'll see how that goes, but it's fun to always sit back as a fan and watch. What was your impression of the footfall call? Um, I didn't see it, so I can't yeah. comment too far on it, yeah. but, um, you know, if she did and, you know, you got to follow the rules that, you know, she's not exempt from the rules sure. either. It was as we saw in the finals of, uh, us open last year. And what about the men? Um, you know, I know that you've played Rafa. What is, I mean, what does that feel like? Yeah, his pace is is uh, unmatched on the forehand side for sure. His effort level and intensity level is unmatched. Uh, you know, there are patterns and ways that you can get around him. To me, Djokovic was the toughest one to play because you really felt like, out of all those guys, you really felt like there were there were almost no holes. You know, with Rafa, you can sort of exploit his backhand side or maybe get him get him over to the forehand side, hitting forehands as opposed to inside in, inside out forehands on the other side of the court. Um, felt a little more comfortable. Don't get me wrong. You didn't feel comfortable, but you felt a little more comfortable than you did with him controlling the point from that, from his backhand corner with his forehand. Um, Novak really just sort of felt like there wasn't anywhere to go. There wasn't anywhere that you could say it's 30 all I need a first serve here. And this is where I can get it with, uh, with Rafa and with Roger, you know, you sort of felt like with Rafa and his backhand and his return, um, he didn't have the best returns in the world. Um, he certainly returned great, but um, he didn't return like a Djokovic, a Murray, a Ferrer uh, type. And uh, Roger would sort of give you a few seconds of return errors from time to time. That you sort of felt like you could rely on. Um, uh, and that that's getting really picky, uh, obviously. Sure. But, uh, um you know, but with Nadal, I mean, you know, just his effort level, his intensity, uh, um, you know, he just, he sort of just came at you and you, you know, in the beginning of the match, you sort of felt comfortable on the baseline. And then after the first set, you were a couple feet past the baseline. And then the third <laughs> set, you were even further back. And next thing you know, you're just beat to shreds. I mean, he's just something different. Um, do you think there's any players that are going to make a big play in 2019 that maybe we haven't thought about too significantly? Um, I mean, some of the younger guys are going to jump up there. You know, CT pass is a guy that has the it factor for sure. I mean, he, he, you know, he sort of belongs there, which is unique at that age. Um, you know, I, I think Francis TFO, uh, Taylor Fritz, those guys are going to make a big jump this year. Obviously we saw Francis do really well in a, a grand slam event. Um, and, and show the world that he, and, and the players that he can, compete against the highest level and, 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 you know, he's a threat for sure. Um, you know, his athleticism and raw, raw athleticism, um, you know, if he wants to, will keep him up, up really high for a long time. And then, you know, as we know, it takes more than that to stay there and, and to get higher. And 
the mental side of the game comes into play and, and, you know, he's got all the tools for sure. Taylor Fritz has all the tools. I mean, these guys have big games, big weapons, um, uh, you know, and then you look at uh, someone like, uh, uh, Alex Zverev who, who, uh, you know, the next step for him is obviously, you know, making the semis or the finals of a, you know, are obviously winning a grand slam. We've said for a couple of years now that he's the guy that, to you know, kind of take over once the big three or big four are out of there, um, or, or coming winding down. And he hasn't uh, shown that yet. And, um, I don't think there's any doubt that he will show that. Um, it's just, it's been kind of interesting and you sort of feel like he's almost uh, the Ricky Fowler of the, of yeah. the men's tennis where, you know, he hasn't jumped, you know, he's won a lot of big events, but he hasn't jumped over the, the, the edge of that, you know, grand slam or that major championship. Yeah. And you just hope that, you know, the Ricky Fowler doesn't become a Sergio in that, you know, it goes on for a long, yeah, Sergio long got time. It. Sergio. Sergio ended up getting his title and, and getting, you know, the one that he coveted most. And, um, you know, but it, I, I don't think there's any doubt that Zverev will uh, get there. Um, he will be number one in the world. And, you know, he, he, he ticks all the boxes as far as how he prepares and how his game is, you know, his, his game goes. You think Alex Zverev goes to number one and kicks it all in at some juncture? At some point in his career, um, you know, as long as Novak is going how he's going, um, <laughs> it ain't going to happen anytime soon. No, no one's going to dethrone him. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, he's 21 years old, 22 years old. So, I mean, those guys aren't going to play forever. Moving into our third set. This is um, the tip part of our show where we talk about your career. Um, you know, many years ago when Brad Gilbert first started coaching Roddick, um, I went out to Indiana, to Indianapolis, to do a story for the USA Network had the coverage of uh, the U.S. Open at that time, and it was a story about Andy and 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 Brad getting together. And um, I have a distinct memory. I was in the players' lounge, like that big, giant, phenomenal players' lounge, and you were playing ping pong with Andy, and you sliced everything, and you never missed. And I remember Brad Gilbert saying <laughs> over and over, you were just like Vince Van Patten, that you were just like great at games. You never lost anything. You just were like a big time gamer. Yeah. I mean, those hands, those hand games, I, I sort of feel like I jokingly um, with my friends sort of feel like I was created uh, in a bar, you know, where it's pool, it's ping pong, it's darts, it's, uh, you know, the handsy type games, tennis, golf. Um, you love that. Baseball, hand-eye coordination sort of stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's just, that's just, those are things that come really natural to me. I'm not the guy that will, uh, run a 40 yard dash as fast as you've ever seen. I'm not the guy that's going to, you know, that the, the NFL combine, I'm not going to jump off the page at you. Um, but, but I can, um, you know, my hand eye coordination, my hands, my feel, my touch that those types of things, um, are where I excel most. And you had a, just a phenomenal career. You were a world-class junior. That's how you came up. Yeah, I mean, as you know, if your listeners don't know, um, there's a junior circuit, just like the professional circuit, where you can play junior, open junior, Aussie junior, all that stuff. I, I finished uh, in 1999. I think I, you know, finished inside the top 10, or was inside the top 10 for a long time. Uh, most of that year. And, um, I didn't excel when I was 14, but I really, you know, started excelling when I was 16, 17, 18 years old. And, um, that's why I didn't go to college. Uh, you know, I turned pro after basically after my junior year of high school. Um, 
So I was, I felt I was ready. My goal was to be a professional tennis player. And the only way to do that was to turn pro and, and start the process. And I felt like instead of going to college and, and taking my lumps there, um, which, which would have been a blast, uh, I went out, uh, on the road and, and hired a coach and, and started life at 17 and, and, you know, had to figure out ways to make money and, and, and win. And it took me a couple of years to sort of get through those first couple, uh, uh, hurdles of playing the futures and challengers and stuff to really get to those big events. I got wild cards in the big events, but, and would do basically better than I would do in some of those challengers. Cause I kind of felt like, uh, I was better than I really actually was. Um, huh. and, uh, you know, I would, I would really get up for matches against guys in the top 50 or something, but then, um, you know, wouldn't compete at that level against guys that were 150. And, and, you know, even though I felt like I was way better than them, I wasn't winning and I wasn't showing. And it wasn't until 2002 at the end of 2002, where I, I kind of, I remember it was sort of a come to moment where I just said, all right, I'm going to play these four challengers in the fall. And I'm going to get to a point where I'm going to get straight into the Australian open. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of you know, I don't want to make friends out here anymore. These guys are all playing the same tournaments and the, you know, a lot of guys that play those challengers for a long time and can never really break through. It's not that they're bad guys. It's just, I, I just, I didn't, I wanted out of there and I wanted, I wanted um, to move my career forward. And so I just said, all right, I'm going to put my head down. I'm not going to go out to dinner with these guys. I'm not going to socialize. I'm just, I'm here for one thing and that's to win these tournaments. And I ended up winning like three of them. Uh, three of the four and, and getting not only inside the top hundred, but kind of inside the top 75 or inside the top 80 uh, by the end of that year. And, and that, that started the process of uh, 2003. I uh, beat Carlos Moya, who was in the top four or three in the world. Former world number one, by the way. Yeah. And he was in the top four or five in the world at the time. And I beat him back to back weeks in Sydney and in, and the, and the Australian open in the second round made the, you know, third round and lost a long five set match to Wayne Ferreira. And, and that sort of jump started, uh, made, ended up making four finals that year and finishing in the top 20 in the world. So, um, you know, before I was 21 years old, so it was really those, it was really that kind of come to moment that, um, you don't belong here, but you have to show it. And I, you know, I wasn't able to show it and I was too comfortable in there and, and you know, in some of those events and you're having um, too much fun and then you just put your head down. Yeah. And you know, you just start working, you say, all right, that's enough of this. And, and, uh, I was lucky enough to do it. Um, just to backtrack for one second, what is your greatest junior win? What is the best thing you ever did as in junior tennis? Oh man. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I won a lot of, uh, I won a couple of the grass court events. Grass was always my best surface. Um, or my most successful surface. Um, you didn't like beat Thomas Burditch and make him cry or, you know, I don't know. I'm just curious. <laughs> Nothing Not that like I that. I can remember to be honest. No. I mean, you know, I All played right. with a lot of those guys, Nelbandian and Corio. If you remember Guillermo Cor Coria, course, man, Guillermo Coria. Um, those guys were guys that I played with in juniors. And, um, you know, it's ironic that the guys that were, you know, kind of one, two and three in my year in juniors, um, never made it in the pros guy, Christian Pless finished. He was from Denmark, finished number one Pless. in the world that year, 99. Uh, he tried to play pro and just never could get above 200. And Eric Prodon, this French guy with just, you know, Julian Jean-Pierre, these French guys that were just so good. And, you know, you almost looked up to him and then, uh, 
You flew right by him. Julian Jean-Pierre, I think he came up at Saddlebrook. Yeah. He never made it, huh? No, I Amazing. mean, you know, and these guys were always so talented. So, no, I don't I don't, I don't remember, a, a, you know, Tommy Robredo was another guy I lost to a couple times in, in on clay, you know, kind of junior French Open and stuff. You know, good, real good player. Yarko Niemannen, um, guys like, you know, guys yeah. like that. Jurgen Melzer that, that I played, yeah, you know, that played for a long time in the pros. Marty, um, how would you describe your pro career to someone that never saw you play? What would you say to them? I'd, I'd say I was uh, an attacking style player, a player that liked uh, uh, everything on my terms. Um, someone who uh, never took the court without trying his ass off. Um, uh, someone uh, who didn't uh, handle stress and pressure uh, uh, of um, negative stress and pressure perfectly. Not everyone can act like uh, Roger Federer on the tennis court. My personality was very fiery. Uh, so there are times on the court where I regretted um, handling uh, stresses, negative stress, things like that. Um, uh, but uh, someone that uh, loved playing for his country, someone loved uh, – Love competing, that's for sure. And um, Marty, I'd say I'd say that you were um, an, a, a week in, week out, mega dangerous player that players had to beat. You very rarely beat yourself. Would you think that'd be fair to say? Um, no, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure about that. I mean, look, there were certainly times mentally where I could beat myself uh, mentally, not not physically. Um, uh, I really prided myself on fitness at the end of my career to where I felt like I was, the, whether I was or not, I felt like I was the fittest athlete in the world. I felt like I could run forever. I felt like anything that I was doing on or off the court was uh, as much dedication and professionalism as anyone was doing. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I look, I, I mentally, I certainly lost matches. There's no way around that. Uh, but I think everyone does. Uh, yeah. uh, but physically, um, I won. I won a ton of matches physically, um, uh, and that that really changed my life. You know, you have a, a, a you have a vigorous Twitter feed. You're active on Twitter. You have over a hundred thousand followers. You know, when we were researching, getting ready for this, I read that you said you know that you are willing to talk about mental health with anyone. Um, one of your tweets, and um, you know. We want to learn about what happened to you. How did the issues begin and, and what happened? Yeah, um, mental health was something that I didn't know much about at all prior to 2012. Um, no one in my family or close close friendships that I knew suffered from mental health. Uh, I wrote a really cool piece of uh, on the Players' Tribune that um, we'll get really in-depth of it if people want to go and just Google Players' Tribune in my name. Um uh, but basically what I felt happened was, uh, there was a change in expectation, um, from 2009 to 2010, where, uh, I lost a bunch of weight. I went on a diet. I finally said, all right, I'm, I'm tired of not being in peak physical shape. I want to, uh, I want to turn over every stone. I want to be one of the fittest players and athletes in the world, not just in tennis. And, um, so I set out to do that, man. And did I ever, uh, set out to do it? I, I basically changed my lifestyle. Um, uh, every decision that I made in and around tennis had something to do with it, with tennis. Uh, every choice that I made, whether it was to go to dinner or a movie or, or something 
oh, is that going to help my tennis? No. Okay. Well then I'm going to go to bed early uh, kind of thing. And I sort of immersed myself in my career and in uh, being as fit as I could possibly be. Um, and with that comes a lot of stress and expectation and my expectations changed. My, my, my career changed to the point to where I always had uh, some nice results here and there before 2010, but never um, consistently. And once I lost some, lost a bunch of weight and, and got into incredible shape, I, uh, my, uh, my career changed and my uh, results changed and my expectations changed to a point to where if I made the fourth round of a grand slam or the quarterfinals of a grand slam, it almost wasn't good enough for me, uh, which was crazy, which would have been crazy in years past would have been an amazing right. result for me. And I heard that you were like obsessed with your points. Is that true? I mean, look, I, 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 I don't think I obsessed with it, um, but I certainly was aware of, of where I was. Um, I remember in 2011, I was in the top 10 and uh, Nadal was going around trying to, get all the guys in the top 10 to sign a petition that said uh, that we would change the ranking system to a two-year ranking system instead of a one-year ranking system where it just, it just felt like that your results just never ended. And it just, you were always defending. And, and that was a good thing in what, in a way, you know, where, you know, you had points to defend and, you know, I mean, you won a lot of matches, but in another way, it was a bad thing where you just always defend this. You had the stress of your ranking staying up there and, at all times. And so I, I was one of the first ones to sign that, um, that petition. It never, uh, came to fruition. I know the PGA tour does that in their world golf rankings. They have a two year ranking system where you're not really feeling like you're, you're, uh, worried about, uh, defending every single week. Um, uh, and, and, and with, with that defending right. comes a, a lot of consistency. So I, I played in 2010, 2011, and I didn't lose very many matches to guys that were outside the top 20 in the world. And, um, and that, that came a lot of consistency when came, you know, and then that comes with that as my ranking and expectations and, and, uh, pressure and, and all of that. And, and my composition and, and my mental state, it just, uh, um, it wasn't anything that I did wrong. It just, uh, you know, it's a chemical imbalance and your uh, there's a thing called serotonin in your brain and, and, and everyone has it and mine emptied. And I had no serotonin left in my brain and to the point to where I, I couldn't, the stress and, and, uh, uh, alcohol, caffeine, stuff like that would really, uh, sort of trigger, uh, these anxiety, uh, uh, thoughts and panic thoughts. And, um, uh, they were overwhelming to a point to where, uh, in 2010 in, in, at the U S open, I wasn't able to play. I li literally could not take the court anymore. I and, uh, I spent, months after that, um, with a, a psychiatrist and, and psychologists and trying to figure out uh, how to, how to get my life back, not just my career, just my life back. And, um, you know, so I have, I'll have a lot of respect for the mental health, uh, the mental health period. And, and, and it's very near and dear to my heart. Um, understanding that side of it, understanding not to judge why people do certain things because, um, you know, you never know what, uh, someone, everyone's dealing with something. Everyone's got issues and it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how much money you have or, or how famous you are, um, uh, or, or vice versa. Everyone's dealing with something in their own world. And, and so I, I, I try not to judge anymore or judge, uh, nearly as much as I used to. And, and why does that guy do that? Or why does that person do that? And, and there's always a reason. And, 
mental wow. health is something that isn't like an injury where you can see a guy limping because he hurt his ankle. Um, you can't tell. And that's why um, it's such a lonely yeah. existence. So, I mean, obviously you've come through and have you come through with, is it a medication thing? Do you see a psychologist? Psychiatrist? Like, how does that work? How did you pull through it? Yeah. I, uh, a therapy, um, medication, uh, meditation, um, you know, all the above, uh, you know, everyone yeah. deals with it a different way. Um, no, no way is right or wrong. I, I was a firm believer in the medication, getting me to a point to where I was able to, get out of my house. And I was in a really bad place, a really deep, deep, bad place. And, uh, if I didn't have the support system that I have, um, there's no telling where I would be or if I would still be here because I, I, I certainly, I, I truly believe that, um, that, uh, the, the support system that I had, um, uh, pushed me through uh, my wife, my family, uh, my trainer, my coaches, my, uh, my agent, um, people like that, that really deep down understood and knew what I was going through. If they weren't, uh, if they weren't around, uh, there's no telling where I'd be right now. But listen, man, uh, first of all, you're breaking it down for us. We love it. And, um, Marty, um, what was the greatest week are the greatest tournament you ever had, would you say? Uh, the Olympics stick out. All You know, the Davis Cup matches stick out. Um, yeah, who'd you beat in the Olympics? Well, the Olympics were something that I, I went into with almost zero expectation. I actually had a back injury going in, and I, I, I had pulled out of a match against Agassi in Cincinnati the, the week before. So I really didn't have, you know, I lost a ton of ranking points, and um, my ranking went from, you know, inside the top 20 to probably 45 in the world before – or, you know, right when the Olympics started. So, um, getting all the way to two sets to one and a break in the fourth up in the gold medal match was something that was far out of my, um, dreams, uh, starting the tournament. Um, and ironically I've got, I never went back to the Olympics. Uh, uh, and, and the reason was because I had some of my greatest memories at the Olympics uh, in and around tennis and some of my worst memories, um, on the court, uh, with, with, within that tournament. And, um, I, I never went back. Huh. Uh, uh, I never, you know, I could have played in 08, uh, 12, uh, uh, not 16. But so you played 2004. That was, that was in Athens. Played in Athens. I could have gone to Beijing. I could have gone to London and I just, I just, I didn't do it. And, um, uh, and, uh, I just, I felt like I had, you know, that you play the Olympics for a medal, you know, you play for that, you know, those memories and, and I got a medal. Um, and I didn't, I just didn't think that, you know, a gold medal was in my, I just, I didn't want those. I took it so hard. It was so hard to come down from that. Um, I had the gold medal in my hand. It was something that, um, that I felt, uh, was, you know, that I, I, I had, I had it and I, I lost it. And, um, uh, I, I honestly believe, you know, it's funny, you know, my friends that don't know anything about tennis say, where's your Olympic medal. And I say, Oh, it's in my safe. I haven't seen it in years. And oh, let me see it. You know, this is so cool. And I, you know, I, I kind of like, yes, it is cool in a way, but I sort of feel like I lost, you know, to win the silver, you don't win the silver, you win the gold and you win the bronze and you lose the gold to get the silver. So yeah, um, it's never really been something that I've showed off for our listeners. Um, Marty, is referring to the final of the Olympics. He was up two sets to one in a break to Nicholas Massou. And uh, you know, I was my next question was going to ask you your toughest loss, but I think I I think I found uh, 
I think I found the answer there. Yeah, uh, that was probably the toughest loss of, of my career. Uh, the other one that jumps off the page is uh, Ferrer in Davis Cup in um, in Austin, Texas, in 2011. Um, I cried for hours after that match, and I was a grown man, you know. And uh, uh, just losing that one, um, I was the number one American, so I you know I played with Andy and the Bryans on our team. And it was, you know, we had a powerhouse team and, uh, that was the quarters in Austin where, where, where Andy lived and it was just packed house. And I, I lost both singles matches and I shouldn't have lost any of them. And, uh, I lost in five sets to, uh, Feliciano Lopez when I was up a break in the fifth and that one hurt, but didn't hurt as much as, uh, losing to, uh, David Ferrer, who's obviously no, no slouch to lose to. Um, but, uh, uh, but, yeah. but, um, that one, that one and, uh, the Nicholas Masu match were two, the two matches that, that jump off the page. Marty, um, you had an incredible tennis career and a great life in tennis. And now you are the captain. I mean, that's as good as it gets. And, uh, it's tremendous. Let's move into our fourth set. We call this the 10 ball scramble. We do not do a deep dive. I just tell you, I say something and you just say the first thing that comes into your mind, okay? All right. On court coaching. Uh, no, I'm a hard no on that. Uh, tennis is a gladiator type sport where the only major sport when you leave the locker room, you're all by yourself. And uh, if you have on court coaching, you lose that aspect of it. So, no, hard no. Um, the shenanigans that go on in the players' box, uh, the sort of the off court coaching. Where, what's your feeling about that? I don't care. I mean, if some joker wants to say something during a match to my opponent, it doesn't bother me at all. Your favorite sport outside of tennis? Uh, to play or to watch? What, uh, to play. Um, I'll say golf, golf and basketball. I love the, you know, obviously golf uh, is a close um, sport to my heart, but, but basketball too. I love the, uh, the fitness aspect of it. Um, golf is, is missing that part. Um, you don't need that part at all. So I'll say uh, tennis in sure. a close second is golf is, uh, or, I'm sorry, uh, golf in a close second is basketball. And to watch football, Minnesota Vikings all the way. You know, Marty's from a, are you from a, is he from a, a Dinah? Is that right? Uh, Edina, Minnesota. Favorite forehand? Favorite forehand, uh, Nadal. Favorite backhand? Um, Djokovic or Nishikori. Favorite serve? Isner. Favorite volley? Um, Feliciano Lopez backhand volley. <laughs> nice. Um, listen, I know you. I know you are an avid sports fan, so I'm going to bust through these predictions and then we're going to move into our next set uh who do you think the nba champs will be uh the warriors who's going to win the super bowl unfortunately i think the patriots are going to win who's going to win the masters um rory mcelroy is going to win the masters uh who do you think the ncaa champs will be this year do you have any do do you follow college hoops duke is going to win that they're too deep yeah duke looks rough and uh let's just get a long prediction on next year's world series uh, if the Minnesota Twins don't win it, um, <laughs> uh, which would be pretty tough, um, uh, the Dodgers have had it rough the past two years. So why don't we say the Dodgers? That would be nice, I think, for LA. anything but Boston. Give me a break. Anything <laughs> but Boston. Full disclosure: uh, I'm a my brother and I are uh, Red Sox and Patriots season ticket holders. 
but uh so you've got it really rough it's been amazing um we feel fortunate you've got it really rough feel so sorry for you <laughs> so listen this is our fifth and final set we call this the king of the court and basically if you were the king of tennis how would you do it okay and my question okay. my question to you is what is your First of all, what is your opinions about technology's role in tennis and what's what's happened? Uh, do you think it's been good? Do you think it's been bad? And if you were the king, is there anything that you would change? And I and I mean uh, racket technology, ball technology, courts, court speeds, uh, string, okay, um, uh, instant replay. Is there anything that really kind of, you know – bugs you and if there's anything you would change if you could just you know magically change it what would it be um i'd have a peek at the schedule for sure um uh you know there's too many tournaments uh there's too many events as well with um and i know how this works uh, certainly but but there's just you know just out of just being a tennis fan and just looking at it. Why are there three events a week, every week? And except for the masters and grand slams, um, uh, you know, no other tour really does that, uh, in, in, in another sport. Um, so, you know, dispersing prize money a little bit better. Why do we need $75,000 to, to lose in the first round of the, the Australian open when you win 75 grand, uh, uh, to win the tournament in Delray beach, uh, you know, so pensions and, a lot of that can go back into other tournaments, uh, in, in prize money, um, or pension plans, things like that. Um, a ball situation, the balls, uh, get more consistent with the, with the tennis balls, uh, have one tennis ball throughout the entire ATP, uh, tour, um, instead of, uh, having a different ball every other week. Can you explain that, that when you're a world-class player, the, the quality of the ball is an important thing. Uh, and it, it's not necessarily the quality of the ball. They're all, they're all finely made. It's just, uh, there's different felts on them. Some are fluffier than others. Some are heavier than others. Some are lighter than others. So, uh, uh, getting consistent in that regard. I mean, I can't tell you how bad you can mess up your arm or your shoulder when you go from a lighter ball to a heavier ball already being, uh, uh within a tournament. So let's say you're playing in Memphis and the ball, uh, is, is heavy. And then you go to Delray beach where the ball's much lighter. And then the next week you go to Indian Wells where the ball's heavier, um, again, and it's hard to, uh, it's hard on your arm. It's hard on the string. Um, trying to get that, you know, find that perfect uh, tension. Um, and so that, that would be, I understand why, I mean, you know, they each have each individual tournament has their sponsors and one sponsor, maybe Prince and the next one may be Penn and the next one may be Wilson. So, um, it's, it's not as easy as just, Hey, let's just play with one ball. Um, but yeah. that would be something that, that would be nice. Uh, 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 and then, and then lastly, the, the speed of courts, it would be really nice if we can get a tournament where is renowned for being fairly quick and one tournament where a hard court is renowned for being fairly slow. And then, you know, obviously we know what we're getting on the clay and the hard, but, um, the hard courts getting a little less consistent. Um, on the speed. So where, you know, um, 
uh, Feliciano Lopez or, or even myself, I love playing on faster services. That's why I did well in Cincinnati every year, Atlanta. Um, those were faster surfaces, uh, hotter, faster services. So, you know, having a grand slam uh, where it would be a fast surface to where, uh, someone like me really had an opportunity or someone like, uh, you know, that played a faster surf, you know, faster game really had the ability to win the tournament because of the court. Well, it sure seems like something should be done. A lot of the tennis is look, it seems like the technology, at least in my opinion, has sort of homogenized, uh, to look and feel a little too much. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. I mean, look, I, uh, you know, the, there was a few years there where the, where every court was so gritty um, it's very easy to make them slow or fast. You just you put more sand underneath the paint to make it more gritty, which the ball grabs and, and slows down, and, and less sand to make it less gritty, where the ball doesn't have as much to grab onto and sort of jumps through the court more or skids through or, or slides through the court more. So um, it's very easy to do. It's just a matter of doing it. My man, thank you so much for breaking so much of this down for us. Um just a final congratulations on being named captain of Davis Cup. Uh, we had a ball talking with you today. I appreciate you having me, man. It's fun. I always love these things anytime. My man, you are released. Have a great uh, rest of your week, okay? Okay, pal. Take care. Thank you. Huge thank you to Marty Fish. We recorded that episode last week. The Patriots did, in fact, beat the Rams. So far, he's batting 1,000 on his sports predictions. We at Under Review do not encourage gambling, but if you happen to be at a sports book, his other predictions were Rory McIlroy, the Duke Blue Devils, the Warriors, and the Dodgers. Please Venmo us whatever percentage of winnings you deem appropriate. Our Salimco sweepstakes is in full effect. Please go to our Twitter and Instagram to enter. I want to thank everyone for listening and for spreading the word. And please, if you haven't already, take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review us. We can be found on iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, or if there's anyone you'd like to hear from, our lines are open 24-7. Our email is info at underreviewtennis.com. At UR with CS is our Twitter handle. Under Review Tennis is our Instagram and Facebook. Our producer is Scott Tuft, and our music is by Brian Senti. Jason Binnick did our mix. We'll be back before you know it with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I am Craig Shapiro, and you are released.